When all is said and done and history is seen in the light of eternity, 1793 may prove to be the most important year in the history of the world, at least since Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. That year marked the beginning of the modern missionary movement, a campaign that is now 227 years strong and will I believe, one day see Jesus' words in Matthew twenty four fourteen fulfilled when he said that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. This missions movement has taken effect in three distinct phases. Between 1793 and 1865, Missionaries took the gospel to virtually all the coastlands throughout the earth. Then in 1865, Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Missions, and the missions movements began pushing into the interior until every geographic nation of the world had been penetrated with the gospel. Then in 1934, Cameron Townsend founded Wycliffe Bible Translators, which had a new and revolutionary approach to missions, focusing not on nations, but upon peoples, ethne, particularly unreached people groups, groups that had distinct cultures and languages and dialects that needed the word of God in their own tongue. This third wave of the modern mission movement really came to a head in 1974 at the Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization in Switzerland when Ralph Winter, who is probably the premier missiologist of the 20th century, challenged the church to shift its focus from geopolitical nations to what he called ethno-linguistic people groups. In other words, Don't think of the 195 nations of the world. That's not what Jesus was talking about. Think rather of the 17,307 people groups on earth. But at the fountainhead of this great epic-making modern missionary movement, which will culminate in the return of Christ and the end of the age, stand two men in particular. Ordinary men in their own right, but giants in the faith. And they were, I like to remind people, Baptists from England. William Carey, whom many consider the father of modern missions, set sail for India in 1793 and he never returned. He spent 41 years preaching the gospel and translating the scriptures into the six major Indian languages. But Kerry never would have gone and he never would have lasted because he never would have had the support of the churches back home in England had it not been for the work of another man, another Baptist, by the name of Andrew Fuller, who was the premier theologian of the modern missionary movement. And together, William Carey and Andrew Fuller founded the Baptist Missionary Society, the first missions organization of its kind with Carey as its first missionary and Fuller as its first secretary. 
But before the Baptist Missionary Society could be founded, before it could command the support of the associating churches to begin sending missionaries abroad, Carey and Fuller, but especially Fuller, the theologian, had to contend with an enemy at home. That enemy was a heresy that had crept into and corrupted the Baptist churches of England in the 18th century. It was a heresy known as hyper-Calvinism. Now, hyper-Calvinism taught that because a sinner is dead in trespasses and sins and therefore is unable to respond to the gospel apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, it is therefore futile. Indeed, it is cruel and absurd to preach the gospel to an unbeliever unless or until that unbeliever has what they called a warrant of faith. That is, some token, some evidence of the grace of the Holy Spirit upon their hearts, giving them some knowledge that they were one of the elect and therefore had the warrant to believe the gospel. In other words, there was a lot of people in English Baptist churches in the 18th century asking the question, if God has already chosen who will be saved, what's the point of preaching the gospel to unbelievers? In the minds of many, to do such a thing would be like casting the Lord's pearls before swine. This mindset came to expression in 1786 at a meeting of Baptist ministers in Northampton, England, when a young William Carey asked the assembly... If Christ's command to make disciples of all nations did not apply to them as well. One Mr. Ryland, who was a senior minister in the assembly, stood up and he interrupted Carey. And he called him a most miserable enthusiast. And he said, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. Well, in response to this hyper-Calvinistic threat, Carey wrote an essay entitled An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. And Andrew Fuller wrote his masterpiece entitled The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation or Acceptance. It's important to note that both Carey and Fuller and frankly the rest of the early modern missionary movement were Calvinists. Staunchly so. In other words, they believed the truths of Romans 9 with all their heart. They believed that God has mercy on whomever he will, and whomever he will, he hardens, Romans 9.18. But they also understood something that the rest of their contemporaries did not. Namely, that in the exercise of his sovereign mercy, God uses means. In particular, he uses the preaching of the gospel and the sending of missionaries to the ends of the earth. They understood that they were to leave election to God and it was their task to extend the free offer of the gospel to everyone without distinction. In other words, they believed both Romans 9 and Romans 10. Listen to what Andrew Fuller wrote. I believe it is the duty of every minister of Christ plainly and faithfully to preach the gospel to all who will hear it. And, as I believe the inability of men to do spiritual things to be wholly of the moral and therefore of the criminal kind. In other words, man's inability isn't some sort of physical inability. It's not that he can't hear the gospel. It's not that he can't understand the words of the gospel. Man's problem is moral. It's that he doesn't love God. 
Fuller added, and that it is their duty to love the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him for salvation, though they do not. I therefore believe free and solemn addresses, invitations, calls, and warnings to them to be not only consistent, but directly adapted as means in the hands of the Spirit of God to bring them to Christ. I consider it as part of my duty, listen, that I could not omit without being guilty of the blood of souls. And I believe the same thing. And I think you should as well. Election does not destroy evangelism or missions. Election is what makes evangelism and missions infallibly successful. Furthermore, evangelism and missions are the means that God has ordained to bring his elective purposes to pass. There is no contradiction whatever between Romans 9 and Romans 10. There is no contradiction between he has mercy on whomever he will, Romans 9.18, and whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10.13. Both are equally and infallibly True. So this morning, I want us to follow in the line of our Baptist forebearers, men like William Carey and Andrew Fuller, and I want us to think about the task of evangelism and missions from this passage in Romans 10. Specifically, I want to answer three questions Why is missions possible? Why is missions necessary? And why is missions infallibly successful? First, we'll consider the question of why missions is possible. Simply put, missions is possible because Christ came, died, and rose again that his salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. Missions is possible because the offer of the gospel is universal. It is available to all without distinction of race or culture or social status or moral background or any other human factor. The universality of the gospel is the theme of verses 5 to 13, which Kurt preached last week. Now, I'm not going to retread all of that ground this week. I only want to point out that the word of faith, the gospel, which Paul says has come near us. It's it's in our mouth and in our heart, verse 8. That word of faith has come near us because Christ descended from heaven as the incarnate Son of God, verse 6. He then ascended from the grave, verse 7, having made atonement for sinners through his death on the cross. For that reason, we need not turn to the righteousness of the law in order to find life, verse 5. Rather, we must receive the righteousness of God through faith. And if you would receive this free gift of righteousness and justification before God, Paul says all you must do is respond to the word of faith which is near you. Paul says it's near you. Christ came. He he descended. He became incarnate. He lived. He died. He rose again in order that the word of faith, the word that brings salvation would be near you. Now what you must do is take it from near you and put it inside you. That's what you need to do this morning. The word of faith is near you. It's in your ears. 
So put it on your heart and put it on your lips. That's what Paul says in verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you would be saved this morning, you need to take this word of faith, this gospel that is near you, and you need to receive it inside you. This way of righteousness, of justification, which is by faith apart from works of the law, is offered freely to everyone. This free, by faith alone, and universal for all who believe offer of the gospel is available really and truly to all without exception. It is not available only to the elect, as hyper-Calvinism taught. Paul makes this clear three times in three verses in verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The emphasis on the, in this verse is on the word everyone. If you believe in Christ, when the day of judgment comes, you'll not be ashamed. He'll not put you to shame. Why? Because your unrighteousness will have been trans, transferred to him and punished in him, and his righteousness will have been given to you, and you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ dressed in perfect righteousness, justified in God's sight. There will be nothing to be ashamed of. And that's for everyone. Then, in verse 12, lest, lest we think Paul might mean anyone in Israel, he goes on, he says, For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Jesus is not Lord of the Jews only. He's not Israel's Messiah only. He did not from, descend from heaven nor rise up again from the abyss in order to save Israel alone. His lordship extends over all. Do you remember several weeks ago from that last Advent sermon in Isaiah 49? Do you remember what the Lord said to his servant? The Lord says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make of you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God the Father says to Christ his Son, you are too glorious to be believed on and worshipped by Israel alone. I'm going to make you Lord of the nations. Therefore the offer of the Lord's salvation extends to all the nations. Finally, Paul concludes in verse 13 by taking Joel 2.32 and applying it to the Lord Jesus Christ. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hear that. Everyone. Anyone. Man, woman, boy, girl, free, slave, black, white, rich, poor, American, Chinese, Iranian, Cuban, convicted felon, Soccer mom, anyone, you, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ will be heard, justified, and saved. None who call upon the name of Christ will be rejected by God. 
There will be none whom God says when they call upon him, oh, I'm sorry, you weren't chosen. It doesn't happen. The gospel is not any of the elect who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, as if we first must know who is elect before we can invite them to call on the name of Christ, or as if you must know if you're one of the elect before you can call on Christ. If you call on the name of Christ in faith, you've been chosen from before the foundation of the world. Otherwise, you never would have called. Listen, church. We've hammered this election thing out of Romans 9. Why? Because Paul hammers it. He wants you to know it. Why? Because God wrote it. He wants you to know it. Why? Because it's important. But you need to leave the matter of election to God and preach the gospel to everyone without distinction. We need to leave election to God and preach the gospel to everyone without distinction. And we need to leave election to God and believe the gospel without delay. Election is no excuse for a lack of evangelism and missions. And election is no excuse for unbelief. Missions is possible Because Jesus is a universal savior with a universal offer of salvation to everyone who believes. So if you're here this morning and you don't know how things stand between you and God. And in a congregation this size, it is without doubt that there are more than a handful of people who are in that state. If that's you, look at verse 13. It's the word of God to you this morning. It is saying, if you will call upon me, I will save you. It's what you need to do. Call upon the name of the Lord. And you too will be saved from the judgment that is coming upon the world because of sin. So missions is possible Because Christ came, died, and rose again in order that his salvation may reach to the ends of the earth and his gospel may be offered to all without distinction. Secondly, why is missions necessary? I mean, I think that the universal offer of the gospel should have been enough to destroy the evangelistic coldness and missionary apathy of Carrie and Fuller's day and our day as well. But Paul doesn't stop there. Not only is the scope of missions universal, but the task of missions is necessary. Look at verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Right? It's true, it's gloriously true that anyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But Paul recognizes and he wants us to know nobody calls on the name of the Lord in a vacuum. There, there's a sequence of events that must take place in order that someone can call upon the name of the Lord. You'll recall back in Romans 8, 29 to 30, 
Paul gave us what is often called the golden chain of salvation. These five divine acts that are involved in infallibly bringing a a sinner to everlasting glory. Paul said, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, this this is the divine chain of salvation. The chain of salvation as viewed from the divine perspective. Those acts of God, those acts which only God can do, which are necessary, essential for the salvation of his children. Foreknowledge, which I showed you is virtually synonymous in scripture with the word election. Predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. And we saw that that chain is unbreakable. There are no weak links. No one is glorified who is not justified. No one is justified who is not called. No one is called who is not predestined. And no one is predestined who is not foreknown from the foundations of the earth. Okay, the chain is unbreakable from that direction as well as from the other All who are foreknown are predestined. All who are predestined are called. All who are called are justified. And all who are justified are glorified. Well, now, two chapters later, in Romans 10, 14, and 15, Paul gives us another chain of salvation, another list of acts which are essential in the salvation of a sinner. But this one is not viewed from the divine perspective. It's viewed from the human perspective. What is required in order for a sinner to be saved? Well, again, Paul gives us five links. First, if a sinner is to be saved, he must call upon Christ. To call upon the name of the Lord is to cry out to God for rescue from sin and wrath and judgment. This word carries with it a distinct note of desperation, of utter dependence of abandonment of any other hope. It's a desperate cry. It's the cry of conviction. It's the voice of faith. It says, Jesus, save me. I can't save myself. I have no righteousness of my own. The only thing I have is sin and iniquity, and I deserve your judgment and wrath. I need your righteousness. I need your atoning grace. So I call upon you and you alone for salvation and grace. Calling, in other words, is the volitional, intentional reach of faith. See, saving faith is not the bare assent to certain facts that we believe to be true. It's not something that resides only in the intellect, as if knowing that Jesus is the Son of God, or knowing that he died on the cross, or knowing that he rose again from the dead, were the essence of saving faith. James says, no, 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 James chapter 2. The demons believe those things to be true. No, saving faith is something more than that. It is believing those facts to be true. It's acting upon that. It's doing something. It's reaching out. It's calling upon the name of the Lord. It is a desperate hope that calls upon, reaches for, and then clings to Christ. With all its might. Second, 
If a sinner is to call upon Christ, he must believe in Christ. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Which only makes sense, right? I mean, in order for a person to flee to Christ, to call upon his name for salvation, they first need to believe that Jesus is willing and able to save them. They need to believe the content of the gospel. That Jesus is the incarnate God who was crucified in the place of sinners, who rose again on the third day, who ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high, who is coming again at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead. This is what qualifies Jesus to save sinners. And nobody's going to call upon Jesus for salvation unless they believe those things about him. No one will call upon a name which they do not know, and no one will call out to a Savior they don't believe is able to save. But third, if a sinner is to believe in Christ, they need to hear of Christ. How will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? See, the the conviction that Christ is able to save comes through the hearing of the gospel. In order to be saved, a sinner must believe the gospel, and in order to believe the gospel, they need to actually hear the gospel. Saving faith must have an object. No one is saved by faith only. They're saved by faith in Christ, who became incarnate as the Son of God, died for their sins, rose again from the dead, and so on. Saving faith must have an object. It must be attached to the biblical, historical truth of Christ. Because faith in the wrong object or the wrong person, no matter how intense, no matter how sincere, is not saving faith. We saw that from verse 2 of chapter 10. Harry Ironside was the longtime pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago from the first half of the 20th century, and he, he told the story about a, a flamboyant evangelist by the name of Gypsy Smith who rolled into town one day in order to hold uh, these, these evangelistic meetings in the city of Chicago. And on one occasion, Ironside went to hear him preach, and, and that time Smith told many entertaining stories about growing up in a gypsy camp. That's how he got his name. He was a former gypsy. So he told all these stories about what it was like to be a gypsy, what life on the road was like, and he had the congregation eating out of the palm of his hand, but Ironside noted that he didn't say very much about Jesus. He hardly mentioned the gospel. Yet at the end of his message, he gave an altar call in which hundreds of people came forward to respond, which caused Ironside to ponder what exactly the crowd was responding to. Perhaps, he thought, they want to become gypsies. Again, it's not mere faith that saves. It is faith in the gospel of Christ that saves. And no one exercises faith in the gospel of Christ unless they hear the gospel of Christ. And and actually, I think my Bible doesn't translate this phrase very well. Because I think there's something more that happens in the preaching of the gospel than what is readily apparent in the ESV version of verse 14. It's not actually how will they believe in him of 
whom they have not heard. There is no of in the Greek text here. Rather, literally translated, it is how will they believe him whom they have not heard. As if Paul were saying that in the preaching of the gospel, someone else is calling, namely Christ. How does Christ call his people to faith? He calls them to faith through the preaching and the hearing of the gospel. When the gospel is preached, it is not just the human preacher who is at work. Jesus is at work by his spirit, calling for and commanding faith. This is the way Paul spoke elsewhere. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, when he said, Therefore, we, the preachers of the gospel, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. No one believes unless he first hears that sovereign and effectual call of Christ that awakens within them saving faith. But no one hears that sovereign and effectual call of Christ which brings forth faith unless they actually hear the gospel preached. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Jesus does not ordinarily, I'm not going to go so far as to say never, he did so for Paul at least, but Jesus does not ordinarily call sinners through dreams or visions or other miraculous extraordinary means. If you're waiting for God to save what William Carey and Andrew Fuller would call the heathens, the unreached peoples of the earth, through dreams and visions, you're waiting in vain. Why? Because God hasn't said faith comes through dreams and visions. He says faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, which is sent out by whom? You, the church. The ordinary way in which God calls sinners to faith is through the ordinary preaching of his word. Fourth, if a sinner is to hear of Christ, or if they're to hear Christ, someone must preach Christ to him. How will they hear without a preacher? See, the gospel is not intuitive. In other words, nobody knows the gospel by nature. Nor is anyone able to figure out the gospel by just thinking about it hard enough through logical reasoning or observation. It's not a part of the general revelation in creation or in conscience. You you cannot look at a Christian, for instance, at the way he lives and deduce, well, the Son of God must have become incarnate and died in his place and risen again from the dead, and he must have been then born again through faith in Christ. Nobody comes to that conclusion in the same way that people can walk out and look at the heavens which are declaring the glory of God and come to the conclusion that there's a creator who made all of this. Special revelation, namely the preaching of the gospel, is not the same thing as general revelation in creation and in conscience. The gospel must be proclaimed in order for a person to hear and believe and call. Sometimes this proclamation comes in written form. Sometimes people hear the word of Christ as they're reading the word of Christ. This is how they hear the word of Christ. 
Sometimes, we talked about this morning in our Connect group, it comes over the radio as we're listening to Bible preachers. And in that voice transmitted through radio waves, Christ calls and they hear and they believe and they call and they're saved. Sometimes it happens through reading a Christian book about the gospel, but there's enough word of Christ in that gospel that Christ calls through that word. I'm not trying to restrict the medium of communication here. I don't think that's what Paul is doing. But I am saying that God especially has ordained the preaching of the gospel to the salvation of sinners. 1 Corinthians 1.21, God was well pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. When I was in college, it was, it was fashionable uh, to quote from St. Francis of Assisi, who said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. You ever heard somebody say that? No, there's, there's two problems with it. It was supposed to, I guess, promote some sort of lifestyle evangelism where, where people were supposedly to learn the gospel by watching the way that Christians live so that we wouldn't even have to say anything. And it sounds good, but there, there's two problems. Number one, Francis never said it, and he never would have said it because Francis was a preacher. But secondly, it doesn't make any sense. The gospel is good news, and news only comes through words. So preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Makes as much sense as saying, build a house, and if necessary, use wood. A more biblical statement would be, preach the gospel at all times, and since it is necessary, use words. If you don't speak the gospel to your friend, your neighbor, your child, your spouse, your family member, you have not preached the gospel to them. Fifth, if a preacher is to preach the gospel, he must be sent. How will they preach unless they are sent, Paul asks. Once again, this is a logical deduction from what has been previously stated. How are missionaries going to flood the field with gospel proclamation unless churches send them and fund their evangelistic efforts? How will Bibles be printed unless churches pay for their publication? How will gospel preaching be transmitted via radio waves across closed borders into places like North Korea and Iran unless churches are paying for the airtime. Christ sends messengers by his word and his spirit. His word, which tells us to go. His spirit, which places upon our hearts a call, a burning desire to go. And then churches send missionaries by means of prayer and financial support. And as usual, Paul supports this point with a quotation from the Old Testament. This time he pulls from Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Which underscores the necessity of sending out preachers. Because it, it refers to a day and age in which news spread from city to city. Not by newspaper or, or telephone or broadcast or email. But by word of mouth that was taken by foot. Messengers, they were called evangelists, good news bearers, would travel swiftly by foot in order to bring the good news of victory back from the battlefield or the glad tidings of a king. And Paul says, we're those evangelists. But if we don't go to proclaim the good news, sinners won't hear. And if sinners don't hear, 
they won't believe. And if sinners don't believe, they won't call. And if they don't call, they won't be saved. Evangelism is necessary to the salvation of our neighbors, and missions is necessary to the salvation of the nations. So we've seen why missions is possible, right? Christ is a universal Savior who has made available a universal gospel of salvation. And we've seen why missions is necessary. In order to receive the righteousness by faith and so be saved, sinners must call upon the name of the Lord. In order to call, they must believe. In order to believe, they must hear. In order to hear, someone needs to tell them. In order for someone to go tell them, they need to be sent out. But there's a third question raised by our text. And it's the question of why is missions successful? Now, if you've looked down at the rest of the chapter, you may wonder, where's the success? Because it appears that Paul is describing a distinct lack of, ex- of success, at least among the Jews. I mean, the very next phrase that he states is, but they've not all believed. The unbelief of Israel is the theme of verses 15 to 21. Indeed, it's the theme of all Romans 9 to 11. Well, so it may seem, but there's more to the story. First, Unlike the golden chain of divine acts in Romans 9, 29 to 30, we find in verse 15 that that missiological chain of human acts in Romans 10, 14 to 15 is not unbreakable. In fact, it is breakable and it's fallible. In other words, not all who hear the gospel believe. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, Who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, if you look down at verse 19, you'll find that Paul's speaking specifically of Israel. Israel heard the gospel and they did not believe. Or as Paul puts it, they did not obey the gospel. And he quotes Isaiah 53.1 for support, which is a really legitimate verse for him to to quote from because it speaks of, it foresees the suffering servant who is not going to be received by his own. Indeed, he's going to be despised and rejected of men. That's what Isaiah foresaw about the suffering servant. And Paul looks back and he reaches into Isaiah 53 and he pulls that verse and he says, see, it's happened. Israel did not believe even though they heard the word of Christ. And they did hear. Paul makes clear in verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Israel heard the word of Christ, which should have brought forth faith, but it didn't. And the Old Testament passage Paul quotes from is Psalm 19.4, which again is kind of odd because that verse, that, that psalm is speaking of the glory of God being declared in, in, in all of creation. It's speaking of general revelation. But I think the, Paul, the point Paul is making is that the word of faith, which has now come near to Israel, has come as near to them as the word of creation had. In other words, there's no excuse. In the same way that anyone can look out at the heavens and deduce that there is a God who made this and he must have made me too and I'm accountable to them. In the same way, when the gospel comes near to a person like it had come near to Israel, there's no excuse for them to seeing this is what God has done to reconcile me to himself. 
The gospel has been preached throughout the earth. The word there means the inhabited world. Indeed, to the ends of the world. Therefore, Israel's unbelief is as inexcusable as the Gentiles' unbelief when they rejected the word of creation. More so, even, considering Israel's immense privileges. But verse 19, not only did they hear, they also understood. Paul says they knew. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Okay, but what did they know? Well, again, Paul quotes from two Old Testament passages. One from the law and one from the prophets, which is his M.O. First, verse 19, he quotes from Deuteronomy 32, 21, from the Song of Moses. His point being that Israel had been told what would happen. He was, they were told that because of their unbelief and disobedience, God would cut them off and provoke them to jealousy by taking strangers and aliens, that is the Gentiles, and making them his covenant people and the object of his covenant blessing. Now, when Paul says Israel understood or knew this, he's not saying they actually believed it would happen. He says they had been forewarned. It's right there in their scriptures. Paul then quotes from Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So verse 20 makes the same point as verse 19. Okay, God has shown himself to the Gentiles. He's made them his covenant people. And Israel had been told plainly and boldly in advance that this would happen. Then verse 21 contrasts the response of the Gentiles with the negative response of Israel. Yet they have remained disobedient and contrary, rejecting the outstretched hands of a gracious God. That's Paul's argument. Now, you may be asking, you should be asking, Where's the success? Okay, Paul declares this glorious missionary enterprise, which brings the universal gospel of salvation to the ends of the earth in verses 13 to 15. And then he turns around in verses 16 to 21 and he says, but they don't believe. So where's the success? The main point of verses 16 to 21 is Israel's rejection of the gospel in spite of centuries of prophetic warnings and decades of apostolic proclamation. In fact, one could make the case that verses 16 to 21 display the failure of missions. One response, I think two points bear repeating. First, everything we just read in verses 16 to 21 takes place in the context of Romans 9 to 11 the central point of which is that Israel's present unbelief does not represent a failure of God's word. Rather, it is the outworking of God's sovereign purpose of election, according to which he has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he will. In other words, nothing has changed. The unbelief of Israel does not represent a failure of the mission. It's a part of the plan. That plan will be unfolded in the next chapter. The second point that bears remembering is that the same sovereignty that has placed Israel in a state of blindness and hardness of heart 
has also opened the eyes and the hearts of vast multitudes of Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation so that they are flooding into the kingdom day by day. Verses 19 to 20 are declarations of God's sovereignty over the mission of the church. It is God who took a foolish nation who were not a people, who did not seek him, who did not ask for him. And he's given them eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand so that they would come and believe and become his covenant people, his holy church. Why is there a church in every nation on earth? It's because God has mercy on whomever he will. It's because God is infallibly successful in his divine mission. His mission cannot fail. God has given his word and his spirit to his church in order to guarantee that the church cannot fail. In order to guarantee that his son will be worshipped by a vast multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation upon the earth. What about Israel, you might ask? Are they doomed to failure? Well, you'll have to wait for Romans 11. I'll give you a hint, though. God's sovereignty will see to it that before the end comes, Israel, too, will embrace Christ be grafted back into the church and flood into the kingdom. In his famous tract, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to the Use of Means for the Conversion of the Heathens, boy, they knew how to title books back then. William Carey argued that the Great Commission applied to all Christians at all times. He said, multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. In other words, William Carey was not content to allow the doctrine of election to become an excuse to ignore Christ's mandate. And so in 1793, William Carey, his family, which included three boys and a pregnant wife, and a surgeon named John Thomas set sail for India. In the first six years of their ministry, they were absolutely miserable. They were continually short of funds. They had to move regularly in order to find employment, and they battled continual illness. It soon became too much for Thomas, and he abandoned the mission and returned back to England, leaving Carey all alone. Carey wrote during that time, I am in a strange land, no Christian friend, a large family, and nothing to supply their wants. <laughs> well, I have God, and his word is sure. But Carey's faith in the sovereignty of God was severely tested. He contracted malaria. His five-year-old son died of dysentery, and his wife went mad eventually having to be physically restrained and confined to a locked room. Nevertheless, Carey's faith remained. He wrote in his diary, This is indeed the valley of the shadow of death to me, but I rejoice that I am here notwithstanding, and God is here. After seven years of continual struggle, God's blessings began to fall upon his ministry. In December of 1800, seven years, seven years, into his ministry, he baptized his first convert. Carey found teaching and printing jobs in Calcutta, which began to provide sufficient funds for himself and for the mission. 
carries proficiency in languages, which was no doubt a modern day gift of tongues is, is just legendary. He translated the entire Bible into six major Indian languages and parts of other languages and dialects, and his dictionaries and grammars helped generations of missionaries learn the Indian languages as well. Oh, and by the way, he had no formal training. He founded a Bible college, which is still functioning today. Every semester, it has 2,500 divinity students training them for the ministry. He worked tirelessly for societal reform. He fought against the practice of infanticide, the practice of widow burning, which was a big part of the Indian culture, and the practice of assisted suicide. By the time Carey died in 1834, after 41 years on the field with no furlough, Carey's mission had baptized over 700 converts. But by far, his most important contribution was to bring the word of faith near to the Indian people through his Bible translations. If he hadn't gotten the word of God in their own language, they wouldn't have heard, they wouldn't have believed, they wouldn't have called, they wouldn't have been saved. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Without the word of Christ, brought to them in large part by William Carey, there would be no Christians in India today, yet today there are over 25 million children in the faith. William Carey was a Calvinist. That is, he believed in the doctrine of God's unconditional election. He believed in the sovereignty of God over the eternal destinies of men. He believed, Romans 9, 18, that God has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he will. But he also believed with just as much intensity and and passion, Romans 10, 13, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he believed, Romans 10, 14, and 15, that no one would call upon Christ unless they believed on Christ, and no one would believe on Christ unless they heard of Christ, and no one would hear of Christ unless he went went and told them. The sovereignty of God does not destroy missions. It fuels missions. It keeps missionaries going when suffering abounds. How else are you going to stay on the field when you contract malaria? How else are you going to stay on the field when your little boy gets sick and died? How else are you going to stay on the field when your wife decides that you have a demon and she takes a knife to you and tries to kill you and she has to spend the rest of her life locked up? How else are you going to stay on the field and stay on the task unless you believe that all of it is under the sovereign hand of a gracious God? The sovereignty of God is what keeps you going through suffering. It's what keeps you going through the hard work, the hard labor of learning six languages. It keeps you going when you preach and you preach and you preach for seven years and you see absolutely no fruit. It keeps you going because you know that the success of missions does not depend upon you, but it depends upon God. And God has promised, he has sworn that his son will be worshipped by vast multitudes from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, including India. That's what kept William Carey on the field. He knew God has people in this vast country. He's got millions of them, and I've got to go find them. But they're not going to come unless they hear the word. 
Therefore, all William Carey had to do was trust God and preach Christ. And that's all we've got to do. Trust Christ and preach Christ.